I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Last week, a group of young military captains seized power in Burkina Faso. It's the second coup in Burkina this year. This is coup leader Ibrahim Traore on national TV, explaining why he ousted previous military leader Paul Henri Santago de Miba. Unfortunately, our common ideal was betrayed by our leader lieutenant colonel Paul Henri Santago de Miba, in whom we had placed our trust. Indeed, the deterioration of the security situation which justified our action has been relegated to the background in favor of unfortunate political adventures. Far from liberating the occupied territories, the once peaceful areas have come under the control of terrorist armed groups. Our valiant people have suffered enough and are still suffering. The coup comes at a tough time, not just for Burkina, but for the Sahel more broadly. Frustration at leaders' failure to beat back Islamist militants has led not only to the Burkina coups, but also to two military takeovers in Mali. Mali's latest government has fallen out badly with France. This is the country's military-appointed prime minister attacking Paris during this year's UN General Assembly week. The world will remember that after being abandoned in mid-air on the 10th of June 2021 by France's unilateral decision to withdraw the Barkhane force from Mali, he says, my country was then stabbed in the back by the French authorities. French forces had been fighting Islamist militants alongside the Malians for almost a decade. Now, though, Bamako has turned to Russia for help. Wagner, the Russian security company whose owner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is widely believed to have close ties to the Kremlin, is reportedly fighting together with the Malian army. So, with a page seemingly turning in the Sahel, what should we expect from the region's next chapter? Will Burkina's new authorities stick with France, or follow their Malian counterparts in seeking Russia's help? What prospects do they and other governments across the region have for taming jihadist militants? To talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast Jean-Avey Jessiquel. Jean-Avey is Crisis Group Sahel Director, runs all of our work in Mali, in Niger, and of course in Burkina Faso. Jean-Avey, welcome back on. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So we heard a little bit about what's happened up top, but maybe Jean-Avey, to start, you could say something about why this took place now. 
so I mean, it actually looks uh, really like the, the previous coup nine months ago. Um, the end of uh, President Damiba is linked to the uh, continuing deterioration of the security situation in Burkina Faso. Uh, Damiba failed to change this trend. Violence uh, has been on the rise in the last few months, like it was before. The situation is getting worse. And like nine months ago, the trigger of the coup came from an attack from the jihadists, an attack against a convoy this time, a convoy trying to bring food to a besieged city in the north. Uh, dozens of vehicles were, were burned and between 15 to, um, to 30 soldiers were killed in, in the operation. A few days before that, uh, President Damiba had sacked the Ministry of Defense and took over the responsibility the attack on the, on the convoy uh, highlighted his inability to change the situation. So the trigger is, is exactly the same as, as 10 months ago. Um, and uh, the, the whole population is still frustrated with the, the lack of progress. And tell us a little bit then about Traore. So what he's a young captain in the Burkina military. What do we know about him? Well, we don't know much, but what we know is that he's a, he's a, he's a very young officer. He's 34. A very important point is that uh, he has direct combat experience in the last few years. He has already supported President Damiba during the first coup a few months ago. He was among a larger group of uh, younger officers, captains for most of them, who supported Damiba. This is a generation of military officers who are, who, who are increasingly frustrated with the older generation of officers, with the colonels, with the generals, who don't know the battlefield as much as the captain or the, the commanders. They're also a generation who is probably less connected to politicians than the oldest generation. And it belongs to, uh, to this uh, younger group of officers who believes that the older officers are, are unable to make the choice necessary to put the country back on, on the good tracks. And it all seemed to happen quite fast, right? I mean, without a lot of bloodshed, so no major clashes between army factions in the streets. I mean, is, is that right? I mean, did Damiba just have no support? Yes, it's true that, uh, you know, according to Damiba himself, there may be, you know, uh, two to three uh, people who died during the, the coup. So it's relatively bloodless, like the one uh, nine months ago. But I will qualify the, the event and the tensions. We, I mean, in the past few days, especially uh, just after the public speech by Traoré taking over power, there was a lot of tension in the streets of, uh, uh, of, uh, of Ouagadougou. It was not clear that Traoré was uh, really, or had really the, the upper hand against Damiba. The army really uh, appeared divided. So I think that we avoided the bloodshed. I think that uh, the things could have gone uh, much worse. There were a lot of discussion over the weekend, a negotiation between uh, uh, Daniba and, uh, and Traoré and other influential uh, people in Burkina Faso, including some traditional uh, uh, religious leaders. Um, I think that also the fact that the population who is growing frustrated in Ouagadougou uh, took over the streets it was part also the fact that in the end, Damiba decided to resign. But it is unclear uh, how large and how strong is this popular support. Um, the people who took the streets uh, in the last few days already took the streets, maybe the same person actually, nine months ago to support Damiba. Um, I think that right now the, the, the population is des desperate to find some kind of a, of a, of a, of a savior for the nation. And clearly, Damiba uh, uh, was not able to, to change the trend 
So the population is, I think, you know, especially in Ouaga, ready to uh, to support a new a new figure. I mean, it's obviously difficult to generalize about what Burkinabe think or what people in Ouagadougou think, but the insecurity, the failure of the elected government before the MIBA and now the failure of the MIBA to sort of make headway against the Islamist militants that we'll talk about in a moment, especially in the in the north and the east of the country. That's obviously a, a big concern. And yet people are prepared to give another military commander a go despite the failure of, of the MIBA. There's not a sort of scepticism about whether the army is the right institution to lead the country at this moment. I mean, there's not a more popular disquiet about the military being in charge. Uh, possibly, but it, you know, it also tell, tells us about the discredit of the political class. There is nobody really uh, trusts any politician to be able to stand as a savior for the nation. And in this kind of uh, situation, the, the population is, is, is turning toward the army. This is the security situation. There is a lot of violence, expansion of, uh, of uh, armed violence in the, in the whole country. So, we can understand the fact that you know the, the, the many people believe that the solution will come uh, from a from a military figure, uh, even if it's not actually uh, evident that uh, the the Burkina Army is able to militarily defeat uh, the insurgents. Also, uh, you know, Traoré uh, tried to introduce himself as a member of the younger generation who can make bolder choice. And that's a very important point here. Very quickly, he said that there is a need to change uh, uh, the strategic alliance that Burkina has made in the last few years, especially with, with France and, and other countries. And um, even though he did not uh, uh, directly mention Russia, many people understand between the lines that actually uh, one of the choices that, that he could make is, is, is to shift the alliance uh, or to establish a, a stronger alliance with, with the Russian, exactly like the military authorities in, in Bamako uh, did more than a year ago. Yeah, and we'll talk about uh, the role of Russia in Mali in particular. But am I right, Jean-Avé, that Damiba, he tried to sort of retain relations with Western governments. I mean, he tried to balance his relations with France with relations with Russia. But there's a sort of sense that maybe Traoré, is going to head in a different direction? That's a possibility. There is a lot of discussion, you know, behind the curtains that we don't get access to here. And, and, and many people speak, speculate about, you know, the, the, the Russians and, and more precisely uh, the Wagner, you know, the mercenary company, try to approach Damiba. But we have, you know, we've, we've heard from, from multiple sources in Burkina Faso that indeed they were attempted by the Russian and more precisely by Wagner to establish very soon, you know, a connection with Damiba. And Damiba tried to play it the, the clever way. He tried to articulate uh, both the, the Russian support and, uh, and the, 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 the classical eyes, you know, the Western, the Western, uh, uh, the support of the Western actors. This proved very difficult. Uh, and, and Damiba came under a lot of, uh, uh, of pressure. And uh, while he was trying to accommodate, to articulate uh, different forms of assistance, he did not achieve much in the country. Uh, to be honest, he did not have much time. He tried, for instance, to, uh, to reorganize the, v the VDP, which were groups of armed civilians who support the army, but are also responsible for a lot of community-based violence. But he did not have time enough 
to really uh, show that uh, he was able to to re re retake full control over this this VDP. He also tried to discreetly uh, negotiate with the jihadists and to uh, to relaunch a process of national reconciliation, but again, you know, that it did not uh, achieve much uh, result. So the frustration uh, grew among the population and also among the, the younger officers. And they, I think that they're really looking at what is going on also in the neighboring countries, especially in Mali. And uh, I mean, true or not, there is this sense in Mali that the situation is changing thanks to the Russians and to the, uh, the support of, uh, of Wagner. And I believe that some among the military officers, not necessarily everybody, believe that maybe that this is a time to change the alliance. And so the French accuse Russia of spreading disinformation about France's role, that Russia has sort of stoked anti-French sentiment in both Mali and in Burkina. And, you know, if, if it is indeed sort of Russia and the Wagner group that might stand to benefit from the change of power, I mean, I, I appreciate it's difficult to, to say any of this with much certainty, but that might suggest that the Wagner group, Russia itself, might have at least some hand in, in this, even if not directly. As you said, you know, it's very difficult to know to what point, you know, the, the, the Russians are influencing the current uh, development or the recent development. Uh, what do we know? We know that there were Russian flags, you know, in the, in the streets. And it's not only civilians holding the, waving the, the Russian flags. It's also soldiers close to Traore waving these flags. Um, there is a lot of speculation, but very little evidence about, you know, the, the nature of this influence. The day following the coup itself, um, Traoré capacity to, to hold power was unclear, was still unclear. And so he, you know, he made a speech in which he declared that Burkina Faso should be able to choose new partners. And he also accused France of protecting President Damiba. And these messages were already circulating in the social media before. And possibly, you know, Russian propaganda was playing a role in circulating these messages. But Traoré himself repeated in a way these messages and, um, this started to also encourage uh, demonstrators to take the streets, to put pressure uh, on uh, on the French embassy, to put pressure on on the the military air bases, and this played clearly a role in his favor. And the balance of power between Damiba and Traoré that was not clear up to this point, you know, you know, went you know or favored Traoré increasingly. When Damiba resigned, Traoré quickly shifted his messages and, and called for demonstrators not to attack any more uh, French facilities. Yet it's, it still maintained that Burkina Faso should be able to choose its partners, but it tried to calm down the things. So all this to, to, to say that it's tempting sometimes to see uh, Russia playing, you know, kind of a, the puppet master. But I think that this is really not the case. We have actors who know that both the population and partners are extremely sensitive to the potential influence of Russia. And they also use that. Then the, the question remains, you know, uh, is Russia really interested? Uh, most probably, Wagner seems to be interested in extending its presence in Burkina Faso. And like I said, you know, previously, some of uh, our sources have told us that they have approached President Damiba when he was in office. And it's sure that they are going to also approach President Traoré. So it remains difficult to anticipate how far uh, Traoré uh, will go. It, it remains to be seen. It's, very, it's way too soon to anticipate that. And what's happened to Damiba himself? Well, we don't know exactly. There are rumors that he went to uh, possibly to Benin or to Togo, but we don't have any evidence so mm -hmm. far. 
So we'll come to Mali in a moment and, and talk a little bit about what the Wagner Group has been up to with the Malian army there. Before we do, Jean-Ave, could we just talk a little bit about the fight in Burkina against Islamist militants? As you say, there was this big attack on this convoy carrying humanitarian aid, but it was an army convoy uh, just outside Djibou, which is, from what I understand, sort of under siege by Al-Qaeda-linked militants. I mean, what does the fighting look like? Again, it's sort of typical of the Sahel where jihadists, where militants control rural areas, and then you've got mostly sort of towns and cities that are that are sort of controlled by the state. Is that still the pattern? Yeah, the situation, I mean, actually looks pretty bad in, in Burkina Faso. Uh, the best uh, estimates believe that the government control uh, a bit more than 50%, and actually the government control less than 50% of its territory. Jihadist group have been uh, expanding operation in the in the recent years it's not necessarily that something is really new it's just you know the uh, the continuing expansion of this group the continuing expansion of violence the increasing number of internally displaced persons so yes the situation especially in the rural countryside is is really bad maybe the new development in the last year it's you know the the uh, the, the tendency of jihadist group to put more pressure on urban centers and one of the cities in which the situation is the most concerning is indeed Jibo in the north, which is completely surrounded. Supply convoy bringing food are unable to reach the city by road. Yesterday, there was an air convoy, helicopters reaching the, the, the city, but it's not enough to really assist the population. And there are already rumors that the famine is, is striking the city and that the situation is, is, is close, desperate. And that's, that's, that's kind of a new development. And if the, the jihadists are able to, to, uh, you know, put the same kind of pressure on multiple cities, then that's a very, very difficult situation for any government. And so when we say jihadists as a local ISIS branch, part of the Sahel ISIS faction that, that's fighting in Burkina, but the bigger group, the one that's laying siege to Jibo, this is the local Al-Qaeda affiliate, right? Janim, or Jamaat Nasa al-Islam wal-Muslimin. And some of its leaders seem to be in sort of different parts of the Sahel, maybe in, in central Mali. But when we talk about the fighting in Burkina, that's what mostly Burkinabe commanders making decisions based on sort of loose guidance from leaders, or they're making decisions on sort of where they see opportunity. I mean, do you have a sense of how it works? It's really a matter of debate, but we believe that so the Jnim is a decentralized organization. You have a lot of, uh, of autonomy for commanders, but less for Jnim than the Islamic State. One characteristic of, of the Jnim is that even though it is decentralized, still the top level leadership uh, retain a level of influence that is uh, uh, pretty important. So what we believe, for instance, if you take uh, the, the area around Jibo, to be sure, uh, uh, on a daily, you know, on a, on a daily basis, the local commanders have a lot of, of autonomy. But the decision to put so much pressure on Jibo and and also the fact that they are using Jibo as a um, as a tool in their communication, you know, which is which is a broader communication, not only on Burkina Faso but on the Sahel, it tells you about the level of command of uh, of the top leadership. And John Ove, I mean, I realise this is kind of more sensitive, but. Janim itself is a multi-ethnic coalition, right? I mean, it comprises what Tuaregs sort of from uh, Mali and Niger, Arabs seemingly, Pearl or, or Fulani. Is that the same in Burkina? I mean, presumably fighting locally often maps on to or assumes a sort of local intercommunal dynamic. This kind of a, of a question, I'm, uh, you know, it's it's a complicated question. My sense is that um, 
Jainism is a, is a multi-ethnic organization and, and to a certain extent, the Islamic State also. Then in some area, you know, of course, they tend to rely on one specific uh, community, but it's not even defined in broad ethnic group as we do, but it's sometimes uh, like a, a subgroup coming from this particular area and specialize in this specific uh, kind of uh, economic activity. And if you take another area, then you will have different recruitment uh, patterns. So if you focus on a specific area, like like Jibo, for instance, you'll see a lot of Fulani, you know, especially in the rank and files. It doesn't tell everything about the capacity of Jenim to recruit in Burkina Faso, and they do recruit uh, much beyond the Fulani. So, I mean, we have to be extremely careful on, you know, trying to uh, establish tight links between ethnicity and, and jihadist recruitment. And again, I realize this is sort of a tricky question to answer. Generally, there's a, a lot of fluff written about militant recruitment or radicalization as it's often labeled. But is it possible to sort of generalize about the appeal of, of a group like Janim? I mean, why do people join up? <laughs> There's so many reasons for that. I mean, it's... Uh... First of all, you know, I think that if you want to compare why people join jihadist groups instead of militia, the jihadists are on the winning side, especially in the rural countryside. To my knowledge, nowhere in the central Sahel you see uh, ethnic-based militia taking over decisively uh, against the, 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 the jihadists. There are some places where they resist better than, than in others. But overall, uh, you know, it seems that uh, that the jihadists are, are, are expanding their influence and they are, they are on the winning side. You know, this is one of the reasons, but only one of the reasons. Then, of course, like we mentioned, you know, community-based kind of uh, relationship and solidarity. Yes, it plays a role. Opportunity. For instance, we had interviews with jihadists in the region and there were people who went from uh, being close to the Katiba Masina, which is related to the Jnim, to fighting for the Islamic State. And when you ask them, why did you make this choice to fight for the Islamic State? They actually mention, you know, different kind of reasons. Local politics, for instance, mentioning that, the, you know, the, the Katiba Masina has killed one of their leaders, which is also with whom they have family connections and that, you know, it was a form of revenge for them. But in the end, ultimately, they told me, well, we actually like the way IS share the spoils of war. I'm not saying that, you know, this is, uh, this is the only reason, but it tells you about the different levels. You know, it, it can be, you know, a community-based connection, family connection, uh, the desire to get a better share of, of, uh, of, the, of the spoil of, of war, and also this uh, desire to be uh, on what appears today to be the winning side. Not from the perspective of the capitals, which are still safe, but from the, the, the perspective of the people living in, in the countryside. Let's talk then a little bit about Mali, because it, you know, it's there that there's been really quite a dramatic shift in the country's foreign relations since the coup. So the current military leader, Asimi Goita, has sort of embraced Wagner, as you talked about. And now it seems that Wagner forces are fighting together with the Malian army in central Mali, which is where, you know, Janim, the group we talked about, is at its strongest. I mean, do we know what that fighting looks like? I mean, has that combination been able to do anything that the that the combination of French forces and, and the Malians were not able to do in the past 10 years? Yeah. So, so first of all, what the Malian government claims is that they have, you know, developed relationship with the Russian government. You know, they don't mention, you know, any kind of uh, uh, collaboration with uh, with the Wagner 
uh, mercenaries, although there is strong suspicion that that they are indeed present in the in the country, and actually Russian authorities have mentioned the presence of Wagner in uh, in in Mali. I think Foreign Minister Lavrov even admitted that, right? Yeah, yeah. But but so far, Malians, you know, prefer to talk about you know collaboration with the Russian uh, government. Anyway. I think it would be wrong to assert that uh, Wagner is just uh, brutal and ineffective. I think that Wagner, or, or call it Russia if you prefer, have introduced two major differences in the country. First of all, they do supply weapons, including aircraft and helicopters, much more quickly, much more efficiently, and much more directly than Western partners. And it may be not the best kind of aircraft. You know, there was a, a crash yesterday in near Gao. Nonetheless, for the Malian military and, and, and for the Malian authorities, it's a difference. You know, it's a, it's a proof also of confidence. Second, also the, the Russian soldiers operating uh, in Mali, mercenaries or soldiers, uh, they go on the field. And they operate side by side with Malian soldiers. The French were doing that but much less systematically than the Russians. And this also participates to the idea that there is a change in the capacity of the Mayan army to uh, stop being on the defensive and go back on the offensive. This being said, there are serious limitations, huge shortcomings in the capacity of the Russians. I don't think that so far, you know, the, the alliance with Russia has given any strategic advantages, you know, to the Mayan government. You know, they they maybe have a capacity to organize joint operation, kind of a expeditionary force kind of mentality, but they don't know still, you know, they don't know how to hold rural territory. And this is the same limitation as with the French before. Sorry, sorry before you go to second, John, this has traditionally been the problem in the Sahel, you know, as it has been in many other places, sort of beating back militants, you know, not that it's easy, but it's the easy bit compared with then securing the areas, winning over the population in the areas, giving the areas services, you know, once you've then sort of ousted militants. That's always been the difficult bit, right? So, I mean, and, and Wagner hasn't changed that. Exactly. When I'm talking about the fact that Russia is not giving any strategic advantage, that's, that's exactly that, you know. They, they, and the strategic advantage, you know, in this war will be to, you know, find a way for the Mayan authorities to hold more firmly the rural territory. The presence of the Russian may give some form of tactical advantage, localized advantage, short-term advantage in fighting a few battles, maybe in winning, in striking a group, but this doesn't entail the capacity to hold uh, territory. And, and this is my second point, you know, it's also causing much more civilian casualties. Here again, you know, we should not say that, you know, there was no casualties among civilians in the previous system with the French. They were, you know, but I think that it has increased a lot, and that's extremely concerning. And, you know, last but not least, the Russians, like the French, do support the idea that the military is the solution. Then, of course, they understand that maybe the military is not the only solution. But still, you know, from the Russian to the French, or from the French to the Russian, uh, you know, there is still this idea that the military comes first. But it's very unclear whether giving priority to military operation can break the expansion of jihadi groups. And Jean-Avé, so Wagner 
seemingly more brutal. As you say, there's been this uptick in civilian casualties, whether they're less effective than the French, as you say, sort of maybe some some questions about that. But it's still hard to see that they're going to be more effective over time, right? You know, <laughs> talking about ineffectiveness, it's been 10 years of ineffectiveness. In the eyes of the Malian government, in the eyes of the silent government in Malian Burkina Faso, the French, you know, led system of stabilization has not prevented the expansion of uh, of the jihadists uh, in in the Sahel. You may say that maybe without this system, you know, the situation could be worse. But still, there is a fact. You know, in ten years, the presence of uh, of uh, of the jihadists has expanded dramatically. So, speaking of ineffectiveness about the Russian and Wagner. After you know just a year and and comparing it to the system before you know dominated by the French is not the the best argument we can use. I think that actually both the Russian and the French share a form of ineffectiveness, a form of incapacity, you know, to uh, significantly change the situation from a military uh, perspective. And what is missing is actually a political project to actually you know stabilize the region. And I don't see how it can really. Uh, uh, have any chance if if uh, nobody considers a form of of dialogue and possibly a dialogue at at very high level with uh, with the uh, with the insurgent. How is Wagner being funded in Mali? That's very hard to know. First of all, again, you know, uh, Malian authorities denied the presence of Wagner. There are a lot of rumors about the fact that they are funded by by using uh, mining uh, the control over 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 mines, but nothing is really clear. So that's Wagner. Let's talk then a bit about what this has meant for Mali's relations with France. I mean, we heard the Malian prime minister up top making this blistering speech in the General Assembly, criticising Paris, saying that France had stabbed Mali in the back. We didn't hear it, but he also praised Russia in the speech. France pulled out the last of its troops, I think, in August. Bakan operation not operating from Mali at all now. And Bamako's relations with the Western governments have tanked. They'd never sort of been more fraught. Is there any prospect for that changing? No, <laughs> not with France and not in the short term. But let me just quickly comment on also the, the recent uh, public speeches uh, from Malian authorities, and especially at the UN General Assembly. This is a public speech that is first and foremost intended to a Malian audience. And I, I'm struck by that, you know, the fact that uh, the priority up to today for the Malian transition authorities is really to build up political capital, to build up their legitimacy among the population in Mali. And, you know, they're using you know, the anti-France sentiment. This is one of the elements that they have in hands to really consolidate their appeal to the population. So, you know, let's not forget that. You know, when they talk to the international community, they actually talk to the Mayan people. Then there are re- reality and there are, you know, diplomatic choices or so. And, uh, I think that, again, you know, I don't see any improvement with France anytime soon, not in the short term. The real issue for us is can Mali break up with France without breaking up with other Western partners? And this is proving a very difficult, very sensitive issue. Mali has clearly made the choice to work with Russia, Russia, at least for some time. And I think that there is little option for Western partners to change that in the short run. The issue is for Western partners to define the conditions under which they accept to maintain some form of collaboration with Malian authorities who have welcomed uh, this Russian military uh, assistance. And uh, as we speak, you know, this is what we're working on at ICG, you know, and uh, we're trying to suggest that um, Malian authorities can find maybe 
a way to articulate both their choice to work with Russia and to continue relationship with uh, with uh, Western powers. We are aware, you know, that it's uh, that's a very difficult path. But you know, is Mali doomed to become a battlefield for the fight between Russia and the West? I think this is a serious risk, and I think that this risk is completely unproductive for Mali. Whoever wins this battle for influence, Mali will lose. And, and Genevieve, I mean, it, it, there's obviously a lot that's happened on the battlefield in Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. You know, things looking really different for Russia than they were maybe a month ago. Does that resonate at all in in Mali? The sort of fortunes of of the Russian army, including uh, lots of Wagner operatives in Ukraine. I mean, up to no, not really. There may be less enthusiasm about the capacity of the Russian to. Uh, Transform the situation uh, very, very quickly. But you know, you know, the change in alliance has less to do with Russian success that it has to do with the French lack of uh, capacity to uh, to make a difference, and also the French unpopularity in uh, in the region. You know, that is linked to uh, to what happened in the last decade, but has a broader history linked to also uh, colonialism. So. I will not call that a success for the Russian because they don't have achieved much concretely, but they have managed to expand, you know, on the cheap, you know, they did not, they did not spend a lot and they had much more influences than, than a few years ago. And John Ove, I mean, it seems from everything you've said that a page is turning or, or sort of has turned in the Sahel, French pulling out, a lot of uncertainty about what's coming next in Burkina. I mean, looking back, it was, what, 2012, 2013, when Islamists took over cities and towns in northern Mali. The French then led the operation that ousted them. You know, and in some ways, French firepower has kept militants out of urban centres since. But as you say, jihadists have sort of extended their reach south into Burkina in particular. Violence has ballooned, pitting jihadists against the military, against other militias. So if that's the legacy of the last decade or so, what should we sort of expect now? What are you sort of looking at that might define the region's fortunes? It may be disappointing for, for our audience, but I think that the current situation is, is really characterized by a, a high level of, of uncertainty. You know, if we have had this conversation, uh, like even a couple of years ago, you know, talking about the future, trying to envision where the region will be in a, in a year, or even in a few months, we, we had a, you know, a few, a few certainties. The situation was not going in the good direction. But overall, you know, the, the jihadists had no capacity to really, uh, win over, uh, an entire country, seize a, a capital. Um, the French would, would claim more, more, more targets, you know, uh, uh, neutralized. But at the end of the year, the jihadist group will be still in the same position. Today, we don't know where the region will be in a year. We don't know where it will be uh, even in a few months. And we have you know, events like the recent coup in Burkina Faso that can change and transform the whole region very, very quickly. Uh, so it's very hard to anticipate where the region will go. What we have right now is that you know, the regional system of stabilization that was built under French leadership in the, in the last decade, you know, that was not functioning very well, you know, is progressively being dismantled. Um, the G5 coalition is becoming an empty shell. Just so people know, so the G5 is this regional force, French-backed, a regional force of the Sahel countries. So what uh, Burkina, Niger, 
Mali, Mauritania and Chad, focused mostly on on fighting in borders, but against uh, Islamist militants. And Mali, what Mali pulled out of that, pulled out of that quite recently, right? Mali pulled out, you know, the Chadian have called back their troops. They're still a member of the G5, but you know, it's not going into the right direction. It still exists. And I, 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 and I believe it will still exist in the coming years, but it will increasingly become an empty shell. The uh, Takuba operation, which was a, a military operation by uh, or, or based on uh, uh, European special forces, has stopped even you know before being really effective. Um, Barkhane is still there, but has repositioned central, you know, mostly on on on, on Niger. There is a lot of question around the future of, of MINUSMA. So again, a lot of uncertainty. MINUSMA is the big UN mission in Mali. Yeah. Exactly. I think that at the level of, uh, of the region, of the central Sahel and even the broader West African region, I think that what possibly could happen is a, a multiplicity of uh, bilateral military alliances. The Russian in Mali, the French reinforced presence in Niger, you know, people are, are, are increasingly commenting on the, the likely deployment of Rwandan soldiers in Benin. So is it the end of a regional approach to security? Not yet, but, you know, the regional approach are, are, have, have received serious blows uh, with the change, you know, the, chief, the shift in alliances in, in, in Mali. At the level of the jihadists, you know, they've been progressing year after year, but so far they have, did not have, you know, a capacity to seize full power in a country. This may be changing because of crisis in political centers, you know, in, in Ouagadougou and in, and in Bamako. But they are still um, facing internal rivalries. They are, you know, revived fighting between the Jenim and IS in northern eastern Mali. So very unclear, you know, if they can... Uh, Sees the opportunity of of the the extreme weakness in political uh, uh, centers in political capital to actually expand, you know, to make a, a decisive expansion. In the end, you know, it's very hard to make prediction in such uncertain times, uh, and we are rather pessimistic for the region. You know, the region needed a change for sure, but it does not get the change it deserved or it needs. What we see is that the Sahel is becoming the battlefield for the rivalry between Russia and the West. This is an additional layer in, a, in an already very complex crisis. And this will not facilitate the solving uh, of the situation in the central cell quite the other way around. We've talked a lot about the, the sort of relations between countries in the Sahel and Russia and, and Western countries. But I mean, the relations in the Sahel themselves and in West Africa are evolving as well, right? I mean, Mali uh, and Goitu is sort of, a, in some ways, a regional pariah. I mean, as you say, we talked about the tensions in the G5. You know, Mali's leaders will say those are stoked up by France, but, you know, ECOWAS is very unhappy with Mali. So, I mean, there's lots that's changing in Mali's local relations as well, right? Yes, but here again, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, look, if, if there are similar developments in Ouagadougou, then you may have a form of alliance between Mali and and. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and Burkina Faso, if they choose the same kind of, uh, ally. In Guinea, you also have, a, a military junta governing the country. They, they did not make the same choice as Mali. They did not make an alliance with Russia. But still, you know, it's military leaders taking over in the region. And you have forms of proximity between these, uh, with these, uh, military leaders. So, uh, 
yes, you know, the, the relationship between Mali and other countries, especially Ivory Coast and Niger, has deteriorated a lot. There is a serious risk for Mali to be uh, isolated. But I think they also make a bet. They believe that, you know, the, the whole region is, uh, is uh, transforming, is changing, and that they will find new allies in this, uh, in this region. I'm not saying that that's the right choice, but, you know, I, we need to understand the rationale uh, behind the choice. And, you know, the, I think that there is also a need uh, to find a way out of, uh, uh, of the dilemma. Uh, for all, uh, uh, for all uh, uh, political authorities in the region, not only the Malians, but all authorities, do you which side do you choose? You know, do you go with, with the Russian side or do you stay? Do you stick to the French slash, you know, the Western side? John Abate, what would you say to the Malian or the Burkina authorities about how they approach this dilemma or navigate this competition between Russia and the West, thinking of of their own or their country's interests? Yeah, that's a, that's a very Tough question, and 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 this is the central issue for for Malian transition authorities right now. Um, I think that you know they they've made a choice, and and I think they expect potential benefits from 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 that. I think that it's very important to uh, also uh, tell them about the potential costs. I think that they are partly aware of the potential cost of his uh, of his choices, but they may underestimate up to which point. Uh, the, will be the cost of breaking up with all uh, Western partners. I think it's very important for uh, the Malian Transition Authorities not to associate a breaking up with France to a breaking up with all Western actors. To some extent, there are specific reasons why there is some distance between Mali and France. And I think that there is nothing that, could, that can be done about that in the coming years. But this, doesn't, this does not mean you know, breaking up uh, entirely with other uh, 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 Western partners, so that's that's a very important point. Very important for them also to un- to um, you know understand that Mali has no interest in becoming the battlefield for the battle between uh, Russia and uh, and the West. Uh, whoever wins this battle for influence, Mali will lose. There is nothing to gain for them in this uh, in this, and I think that in the current situation. It is in the best interest uh, of Mali to uh, start a tough negotiation with all partners, with Russia on its side, with Western partners, to find ways to articulate forms of cooperation. Basically, the Russians are providing military assistance, but they cannot provide the funding that are necessary to rebuild, really in a sustainable manner, the legitimacy of the state. And I think that you know the, the Western actors can you know, help channel the funding as they have done in the, in the last few years. But they won't do so if they don't have you know, enough guarantee that what they are funding is really the, the rebuilding of the legitimacy of the state and not the military effort uh, led by, uh, by, by Wagner. You know, going back to the early 60s when Mali became independent, it is said that uh, uh, President Modibo Keita uh, chose to make an alliance with uh, uh, the Soviet Union. And it's true. But they always kept uh, the door open to discussion with the West and especially also to France. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the current Malian authorities uh, should look back at uh, this moment, the 60s. It uh, was not an easy uh, positioning for, for the Malian authorities, for the new independent state. Nonetheless, 
I think that, you know, they, they were sensitive uh, to their capacity to articulate, you know, the best forms of assistance. And again, Russia and the West don't offer the same kind of uh, advantages. You may find ways to uh, articulate them in the best uh, of, of your interest. And so maybe, uh, Jean-Avey, let's go back to Burkina Faso to, to, to end. So last January, one military leader, Damiba, uh, as we talked about, seized power, sort of hoping to turn the tide against jihadists. He failed and angry at his failure. Another group of soldiers have now seized power with sort of many Burkinabi cheering them on. But realistically, I mean, it seems unlikely they're going to have much more success. Now, I mean, is it really going to be possible to make inroads against militants without the change in approach? You know, not simply a change of partner, but a much wider, the much wider change of approach that, as you say, subordinates sort of military operations to, to politics, to, to a more political approach. I think that the, the population is looking for savior. And I think that there is still hope that militarily, uh, Burkina Faso, like Mali, like Niger, that the army can win and achieve, you know, decisive uh, victory over the jihadist groups. If you look at, you know, the, the broader region, you know, Algeria 20 years ago was able to militarily defeat the jihadists, but they also used, you know, a mix of negotiation and national reconciliation. Mauritania was, was able to prevent the expansion, expansion of jihadist group on its, on its territory using a mix of coercion and, and dialogue. To a certain extent, uh, the situation in Niger is less catastrophic than it is in Burkina Faso and in, and in Mali. It's still fragile. But what is interesting is that Niger is, is one of the country who, who tried the, you know, uh, tried very early on to, 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 to establish a form of dialogues while putting at the same, at the same time some, some kind of, uh, of military pressure. Uh, you know, at Christ Group, we, we believe that, um, a military victory, a decisive long-term military victory will be extremely difficult to achieve uh, in the region. And that in any case, you know, this kind of solution will entail massive civilian casualties. You know, let's not forget the human cost of the Algerian civil war. We don't, you know, at ICG, we believe that, you know, authorities should explore more uh, the, the dialogue option while maintaining forms of military pressure. You know, there have been some attempts to establish this kind of, uh, of, uh, of dialogue. That's true. It has not succeeded uh, a lot, to be honest, and we have to recognize that. But also we have to, 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 to remember that so far, military solutions have prevailed over any, anything else. And maybe it's time to give more time, more space to political dialogues and to subordinate military operation to the dialogue option. Again, this is not the silver bullet. Uh, and, and maybe it's even too late as the balance of power is increasingly in the, in the favor of jihadists. But this is, you know, the kind of option that has not been explored enough in the last decade. Jean-Ave, thanks so much again for coming on. Uh, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group by Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Sahel on everywhere else we cover on our website crisisgroup.org you can also follow us on twitter at crisisgroup thanks to our producers kevin murphy heiko schaub and thanks of course as usual to all of you to our listeners please do get in touch podcast at crisisgroup.org or you can write to me directly atwood at crisisgroup.org if you have any suggestions or concerns if you like the show please do give us a good rating or say some nice words about us and i very much hope that you'll join us again next week
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.